Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, this is Dominic Forte with Behind the Knife here at the 2017 ACS Clinical Congress. I'm here with Wudel. Today, we're lucky enough to have with us Dr. Saketh Kuntupali. He's a GYN oncologist with the University of Colorado. Welcome, sir, to Behind the Knife. So thank you for inviting me to speak on uh, ovarian masses. Uh, I'm very happy to do this, and uh, hopefully this will be very beneficial to your audience. Great, sir. So I was lucky enough to hear the talk in person. Uh, We all know that one of the things that perplexes residents and young physicians as they manage the patient that presents with a suspected ovarian mass is how do we keep it all straight and how do we figure out what to do next in the workup and management of these patients? So I think this is a really important topic for general surgery residents because these are things that you're going to encounter all the time uh, in your clinical practice when you go out into the real world and when you're building you know, things up, particularly if you're in the community setting. Uh, the first thing to do is make sure that you know your imaging and make sure that you can see the signs and symptoms of an ovarian mass. And uh, oftentimes what you'll see is patients present with signs and symptoms of a surgical abdomen. So they'll present with signs of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, uh, fever, maybe tachycardia. And the most important thing when you are suspicious of an ovarian mass is to, number one, try and get appropriate imaging, and number two, uh, consult your uh, in-house gynecologist or gynecologic oncologist who can help you manage these masses. Let's say we've now reviewed the imaging. We know for certain that we're dealing with some form of an ovarian mass and ovarian neoplasm but we're just not sure what it is. I mean, what's in your differential at this point? So I think it's very important to look at the age of the patient. So if this is a young patient and they have a simple ovarian mass or even an older patient and the mass on imaging is simple, meaning that it's cystic in nature, no septations, no calcifications, no solid components, then I think we can safely say that most of the time these are going to end up being benign masses. And for benign masses, uh, the treatment is pretty simple, which is removal of the mass, uh, particularly if they're symptomatic. And generally, the cutoff for us is about six to seven centimeters, or if they have signs and symptoms of ovarian torsion, like I said before. So that's generally our cutoff, and these should be done laparoscopically, uh, placement of appropriate ports, incision of the mass, removal of just the mass, uh, particularly if it's a young patient, we want to do ovarian conservation surgery. So that's how we would approach the benign portion. Uh, on imaging, if these are largely cystic in nature, low suspicion for malignancy, then this is the therapeutic treatment. They really don't need anything else. Uh, again, the important thing is to look at your imaging, make sure that the it is truly a simple mass, and then proceed from there. The other side of this equation is, what if you're suspicious of malignancy? So if you're suspicious of malignancy, the things that you would be looking for are solid components on the ovary, um, any signs of peritoneal carcinomatosis on your 
imaging and uh, doing the appropriate workup, which will include in an older patient, maybe a serum CA125, which is the marker for ovarian cancer. Uh, in younger patients, you would want to get signs, excuse me, tumor markers that are consistent with germ cell tumors. So an LDH, a beta HCG, a inhibin. Uh, these are some of the tumor markers that we see, alpha fetoprotein. The most important thing, however, is to rule out pregnancy first and foremost in all patients that are of reproductive age. That should always be the first test that you get. Now, of the labs you mentioned, do you typically approach this kind of as a shotgun method using all of these up front, or are you more selective? So that's a really good question. In patients that have you know, very simple lesions like a simple cyst or a very cystic lesion with no septations or calcifications or anything that's concerning for malignancy. You really don't need to get anything else uh, in a young patient or even in, even in an older patient. You really don't. Simple cysts are, are just that. They're simple. So in general, we don't send a huge panel of tests. If you are suspicious, if they have any internal septations or uh, things that would make it a complex mass of the ovary, then we do try to tailor it uh, to sending, you know, what we think is the most likely thing for that age group. So in a postmenopausal woman, we would probably just get a CA-125 because that woman should not have even a simple mass. In a very young patient, in a pediatric patient, we would think germ cell tumor, so things like LDH, alpha-fetoprotein, HCG, inhibin, those type of things. Those are things that we would be more concerned about. So it's important to tailor to your uh, age group to see what workup you would do. And as you're examining these patients, uh, are there any physical exam findings that you're looking for that might help guide which sorts of labs or follow-on studies you're obtaining? So, of course. So, you know, physical exam will help delineate and help you decide what labs to order. For example, if a young patient came in with signs and symptoms of hyperestrogenism or hyperandrogenism, so things like abnormal a distribution of hair, clitoromegaly, deepening of voice, signs and symptoms of metabolic syndrome, you would be more concerned about a hormone-secreting tumor. So that can help guide your management. Uh, if the patient doesn't have any of these, but, you know, may have some signs and symptoms of an epithelial ovarian cancer, like early satiety, abdominal pain, feeling full or abdominal distension from ascites, that might lead you down a different path of ordering more, a CA-125 or something like that. So there are definitely signs and symptoms as well as physical exam signs that you should look for in patients to help guide you to the diagnosis. And, you know, your talk was specifically on pediatric patients, but kind of looking at all of these patients in general, uh, is there a particular threshold at which you consider uh, transvaginal ultrasound to be uh, more valuable or of, of a more appropriate study to order? So in all adult patients, we consider ultrasound to be the first-line uh, imaging modality for patients with pelvic masses. We generally like to start with that. It's generally a low-cost intervention. It's generally uh, pretty quick and easy to get. Um, in children, we tend to avoid tra transvaginal ultrasound. Obviously, that can be pretty traumatic for a young woman uh, or a girl. Uh, so we try to avoid that. And in those patients, we use abdominal ultrasound to start. Uh, that can give you kind of a quick diagnosis. Uh, the standard of care really 
really for the imaging of the pelvis is always pelvic MRI, uh, but that can be very expensive and that can be very hard to get. So kind of the middle ground is a CT scan. Um, you know, in the pediatric population, that can be a little bit difficult because children are moving, they don't want to sit still, uh, but really CTU is probably the middle ground and will give you full imaging of the abdomen and pelvis to look for carcinomatosis. It can help to distinguish between maybe something that's malignant or not, but transvaginal ultrasound continues to be the mainstay, particularly for adult patients, to distinguish between complex or adnexal masses. Could you speak a little bit uh, about the actual procedural approach uh, on these masses? So the procedural approach is, you know, for, you know, smaller masses, so maybe anything less than 12 or 13 centimeters, we should almost exclusively try to do these laparoscopically or from a minimally invasive approach if we can. Um, and obviously, we want to do that in patients that are young, in patients with simple masses. They should be able to come out reasonably well in the hands of a trained laparoscopic surgeon. Uh, the goal is to do a cystectomy or maybe an older patient, an ophorectomy uh, without rupture rupture of the mass. That is our goal, because if it does end up being a cancer, rupture of the mass upstages the patient and they may require chemotherapy. So we want to do try a minimally invasive approach first. In terms of bigger masses, so oftentimes patients who are very symptomatic will present with a 20 or even 30 centimeter mass. Those patients are going to require a laparotomy. So you want to make a vertical incision enough to deliver the mass. Be very careful not to rupture the mass. Obviously, that if it is malignant, we'll see the pelvis. One thing I think is really important to note is very, very big masses, 20, 30 centimeter masses, tend not to be cancer. It's the smaller masses that tend to be cancer uh, and metastasize out. So a 25-centimeter adnexal mass with no evidence of any metastatic disease oftentimes is going to be benign, uh, but may require laparotomy to get it out without rupturing and being obviously careful. If you do encounter a malignancy, and let's say you don't have a G1 oncologist or someone that can help you, you want to take peritoneal biopsies, you want to remove the omentum uh, to give basic staging. Uh, We could kind of have a separate discussion about lymph node removal, but you know, uh, if you're kind of in a bind and you find this, you have a patient that has a surgical belly, you want to get the mass out, you want to get it out intact, you want to get biopsies, you want to get washings, you want to take out the omentum, and then from there, uh, refer them appropriately. Uh, great. So as a follow-on for the general surgeon who has now done all that, he's taking out the mass, um, taking out a sample of omentum and peritoneum. Um, looking at the lymph nodes, is it too late at a later operation to, to restage, or is, is it appropriate at all to take any sample of the lymph nodes early on at the first operation? Or do you recommend just closing is just fine? So that's a good question. Um, you know, in general, um, there, there are a lot of nuances to removal of lymph nodes in gynecologic cancer. Uh, in general, we do want to know if the lymph nodes are positive, that would change their stage. And debulking large lymph nodes is is associated with improved survival if they're grossly enlarged. Um, you know, but it's, it's are you going to do the right lymph node dissection? So in general, for ovarian masses, we remove both the pelvic and periaortic lymph nodes. And, you know, periaortic lymph node removal, you know, requires a lot of, of skill and training and the such. So what we don't want to do is have people doing them and then have a IVC or an aortic injury. So that can be obviously devastating to the patient. So what I would recommend is, you know, try to predict these cases. If you suspect a malignancy, send them to a G1 oncologist or to a surgical oncologist who's trained to do these procedures. Um, if you do find it, probably the best thing to do is to do the procedure that I said, and then perhaps you're, the patient will require a second procedure. They may not. If the imaging shows that the 
lymph nodes are all negative or they look like they're not enlarged, we might just proceed with chemo because that patient would get chemotherapy anyway. And do you have a standard regimen that you use for chemotherapy in these patients? So in patients with epithelial ovarian cancer, the um, goal of surgery is full cytoreduction and removal of all visible tumor, what we call an R0 reduction. We know that in patients that don't have an R0 reduction, they have significantly diminished uh, progression-free and overall survival. Um, if you do have full resection to R0, uh, we generally treat with six cycles of carboplatinum and taxol uh, chemotherapy, so platinum, taxane, doublet uh, for six cycles uh, once every three weeks weeks um, is generally what we do. Again, there are a lot of nuances to that. Uh, that's probably the basics of what you would need to know for this discussion. Giving intraperitoneal, giving HIPEC, giving dose dense, those are all kind of more broad discussions that you'd have with your medical oncologist or with your G1 oncologist colleagues. Great. And what's your plan in terms of surveillance of these patients? So all patients with malignancy should be seen every uh, three months uh, by their treating physician with a pelvic exam uh, and and uh, checking of tumor markers. Um, so for things like uterine cancer, the most common place for it to come back is at the top of the vagina. That can be a place for ovarian cancer to come back, or you can feel nodularity through the rectum, or you can feel nodularity in the pelvis, which would make you worried about having um a recurrence. So you want to do that. You want to do a good exam. You want to check lymph nodes uh, as well as check a serum CA-125 is generally the marker we use for epithelial ovarian cancers and the aforementioned markers for the germ cell tumors. And what about imaging and screening subsequently? So that's a really great question. Um, and the answer is, is in general, we get imaging a CT, chest, abdomen, and pelvis um, after we complete treatment to ensure that no disease has grown. And if that's the case, in general, we don't get routine CT or PET imaging on these patients. And the reason is twofold. The first is there's really good data out of Europe to show that there is no benefit to early intervention in patients with ovarian cancer until they become symptomatic. There's pretty good evidence to actually support that as well as we have a marker. So if the patient comes in with a CA-125 of 2000 and it normalizes with chemo, that starts to go up, that could be a sign that the cancer is coming back. And we don't want to over-image our patients. We're trying to be cost-effective, but balance that with catching recurrence as well. Now, in symptomatic patients, we should image them, though. Uh, Let's switch gears a little bit and say that in this scenario, the patient had a large ovarian mass and and, uh, you suspect torsion is actually what's happening. Um, So when you go in for that index operation to deal with the torsion and you do the detorsion, uh, do you typically um, pexy anything? Do you come back at a later time? What's your general approach to these patients? So uh, for ovarian torsion, particularly in young patients, we try to do ovarian sparing surgery. And the reason for that is is we don't want to remove an ovary in a young patient. We don't know what will happen to the other ovary. There's a high incidence that this thing that masses will occur on the contralateral ovary. So we don't want to just willy-nilly take out the ovary just because there's another one. We wouldn't do that with the kidney. We wouldn't do that with the lung. So we, we need to respect and uh, make sure that we only remove it if absolutely necessary. So the first thing I would try to do is to remove the mass, 
untours the ovary, see if it pinks up, see if there's a blood flow there. And if you can see it, then you should stop and, and just close. Um, or even close and, you know, if necessary, could always go back, but at least you'd give the patient the chance of sparing uh, losing that ovary. Um, so that's the first thing. We generally are not doing ophoropexy anymore. That's a controversial topic because we think that when we do that, we are changing the the flow of the blood to the ovary by moving it into a non-anatomical position. And there is an increased risk of developing ovarian cysts on that ovary, which gets you right back to square one and needing to remove it. So in general, we're trying to avoid that. Uh, it doesn't mean it's wrong to do, uh, but you know that, that's a little bit of a controversial topic. Great. Appreciate you spending the time with us to go over this and educate our residents. Thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.